Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Illuminate, a podcast series from Hope Fellowship Church where we share stories to inspire growth and encourage engagement in our community. I'm Hannah Bowen, I'm the Worship Arts Coordinator here at Hope. And I'm Nathan Beer, the Connection and College Pastor here at Hope Fellowship. Today we're going to be talking to Reverend Dr. Thomas M. Beer. He is a counselor, a pastor, a teacher, uh, and also he is dad. Just to me, not to Hannah. (laughs) So we are super excited for this conversation. We're talking all about mental health, counseling, and what to do when things just aren't going our way. So we hope you guys enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Illuminate. Today we're going to be joined by a man who is uh, very dear to my heart. He is a man of many titles. He wears many hats. Uh, he is, Rev- how do you say it? Reverend Doctor? Yeah. What? Doctor Reverend? Reverend Doctor. Reverend Doctor. Reverend Doctor Thomas M. Beer. I don't know whether to call you Dad or Tom for this podcast, um, <laughs> or Doctor, <laughs> Doctor Dad. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, anyways, uh, Dad, thank you so much for joining us. Can you go ahead and tell us, just a, and everyone listening, just a, a quick little bit about yourself, if you don't mind? Yeah, I'm uh, 63 years old, the father of four. Nathan is our fourth, and then uh, married to Rhonda for 35 years. 35 long and wonderful years, as we say in our family. And um, about nine years ago, I started teaching high school again, and this year I'm actually teaching earth and space science and ecology because of the COVID, things got mixed up, and I'm not teaching biology until next semester, but I've taught five different subjects in nine years again, and I got back into teaching again because I started my doctorate, went part-time at church, and realized I need to stay in education. It's a great field of ministry. Then I uh, got my doctorate in 2016 in pastoral care and counseling, and I have a small practice helping out churches with marriage counseling, premarital counseling, and uh, I actually started that way back in the 80s when I was in seminary at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, so finished up that uh, after the kids were out of the house. Nathan was pretty much out of the house by that time, and then um, the doctor in ministry is a really nice title. It's but I did a, all my work towards marriage and family therapy. I just didn't feel like I wanted to finish it and get licensed because I didn't want to have that constraint on me, this, the spiritual constraint on me when I go with a counseling couple or individual that I couldn't pray or bring up the Bible freely. So, um, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. We also own Airbnbs here in Johnson City, and they've, they've been going really well. Lord's really blessed us with those. We have six. And then we also bought a small farm last year, which about uh, almost 40 years ago, I did vocational counseling. And the number one vocation was farmer. (laughs) And then the second was lawyer. And then farmer was number one and lawyer was second. And then clergy wasn't even on there on the list of things. But when the, when the analysts, said, your number one is farmer. I go, why? He says, because you like freedom, you like uh, change, you like to grow things. I said, well, that sounds like a church job. Sounds like a ministry job. <laughs> I'm going to go to ministry. He says, you won't make enough money there. <laughs> so. And it was true. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, had, we had enough. 
and God has provided amazingly well for our family and for retirement. So absolutely. Well, yeah, that's awesome. Um, we're really excited to have you on, not just because uh, you're my dad and I get to talk to you in this setting, not just because of how many hats you wear, but just your experience, your wisdom, and also just this topic of uh, and, and this conversation about what to do when you don't know what to do. Um, and we really wanted to start off this discussion talking about mental health counseling, marital counseling, just counseling in general, uh, and talking about the difference between uh, Christian counseling and normal counseling. And Hannah, I think you had a good illustration of kind of what what we were going to ask. Where is the the overlap between the world's view on mental health and the church's view on mental health? And, and maybe what are some root issues that the church identifies as being spiritual, um, where the world might put a chemical reasoning on it, but where is there like some valid biological reasons for um, mental health issues and um, I think it's interesting you already brought up that you wanted to get into Christian counseling because that was important to you, but maybe um, for some people, is it only valid to go to a Christian counselor if you're counseling because of those difference between the world and the church's view on mental health? That was a big question. Yeah, no, I, I think you hit a couple of nails there on the head. Uh, the difference between Christian counseling and secular counseling and then the question would be for a Christian, would they be able to uh, receive valid counseling if they go to a non-Christian counselor? In my experience as a, a, a you know, sold-out believer, sold-out follower of Jesus Christ, is that when I am in the session with somebody who is also sold out and really wants to follow God and is, is try to live that out, then we have a solid foundation to work from and a very different framework in the world and how things work mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, community, family, sex, sin, the whole, I can talk about the whole package so much more easily and readily because we talk the same language almost. We have the same ability to think about God and say, what is God saying about this? And we do have an objective point in the distance who is God that we're trying to reach that whole Christ-likeness and and knowing that that love and joy and peace is only found in him. It's so much easier to counsel a couple that's going through crazy times together when we know that that is our objective versus just happiness or just getting through a, a system. But, I mean, Christians really do have significant issues mentally like anxiety and depression. Um, but again... As a, uh, not just as a Christian counselor, I would call myself a uh, marriage counselor. The base of operation for me would be the fact that I have a tremendous faith that God is always intervening, always active, and always giving options. So when I go to a counseling session with a couple, I have no idea where it's going to turn out. I don't have a you know, three-step plan to make everybody happier or get along better, but I listen very carefully and most of the time I can know that God is already working. God is doing things in their marriage. And I try to highlight what things are really going well and then try to figure out where the growth areas are that we need to work on to grow. But never, never shortchange God. He's always working in situations. And sometimes you need an outside objective person to help change the reference point. Say, yeah, God really is working, but let's, there are some tough things going on here. 
Um, as far as the biology of this whole, you know, mental health and emotional health and, and marriage counseling, that the biology is that our neurons in our brain get trained to go down a certain path. So the example I always use is when um, a, a child or somebody's had a traumatic experience in their childhood, um, let's say, let's even say it's just a dog running out from behind a bush and barking ferociously into the child's face. From there on out in their life, anytime there's a dog barking, there'll be an emotional response inside that neural pathway that's been formed by that traumatic experience of this vicious dog barking at them. Anytime a dog barks, their brain will immediately be wired to react, maybe with great fear or trembling or anxiety to that event, or a heightened sense of alert, um, alertness so they can fend off the attack. Uh, and you can imagine how much worse it would be if there was childhood trauma or marital strife and those neural pathways need to be reprogrammed. So part of the training that I've had is there's psychotherapy, there's marriage counseling, family counseling, there's, uh, I've done a whole section, a year's worth of substance abuse and addiction therapy. And over and over again, God has given ways to retrain those neural pathways in every situation. Uh, as my good friend Ken Thompson, one of my first pastors I worked under, he would say, when they come in, they're, they're headed for divorce. I can tell because one foot is on a banana peel and the other foot is in divorce court. <laughs> so if they, that first session, if I can start sorting through all the stuff that's going on and they can walk away and say, oh my goodness, that's the first time I feel like I figured out what may be happening. Or I feel like that's the first time we've really talked to each other or and that's in each session, my goal really is to develop intimacy between the couple where they can see into each other. That's into me, you see intimacy and they begin to hear. And there's just even a, even just a glimmer of looking into each other sometimes can begin the change of the neural pathway. So there's a different reaction when that situation that's causing the conflict shows up again or causing the anxiety or whatever. So, yeah, there is a lot of biology to counseling effectively yeah i think one of the questions that i just think of off the off the bat with all this whole conversation is uh in the counseling world there are and this maybe gets away more from marital counseling although i'm sure maybe some marital counseling results in medication for both parties but you know there are like like what you say there are those neural pathways that need to be retrained um but there are also you know just like chemical imbalances so if somebody suffers from depression it could be from a chemical imbalance that something's not going where it should be or it, there's a misfire with a neuron or, or something like that what what does Christian counseling and then secular counseling, what, what, what would, and I don't know if secular counseling is the right word there, but when those two come together, where is the overlap? Um, and then would you say that it's, it's sometimes necessary to go a secular route or would you say that it's always better to go? A, and maybe that, maybe that's not a, a, a black and white answer. Maybe there's, I don't know. Nuance. Yeah, maybe there's a nuance there. Maybe it's even like a, a working together of both of them. Um, but in, like just in, in your experience, when you're talking about retraining those pathways, especially, um, wh where does that overlap occur or where does the distinction happen to where in your experience, you've said this person really just needs some sort of medication, but you're also still in the back of your head, praying over that person for a miracle for that chemical imbalance to be fixed. Does, does that make sense? 
Well, if I hear you right, the question really is about the ability of some of the um, medications, the antidepressants, the um, SSI inhibitors, those kind of things that are working in a person's brain to uh, either increase or decrease uh, serotonin or other chemicals, um, the neurotransmitters that need that are out of balance possibly. Is it okay for Christian to take those? And the second question I think was, um, is it better for a Christian to go to a Christian counselor? Is that what yeah. you, uh, okay. So yeah. I think a lot of people are told by their doctors that they should take a neurotransmitter uh, inhibitor or exciter or something because for the doctor, there's a lot of liability when it comes to not giving somebody a medication if that person turns out to be suicidal or harms themselves. So in order to protect themselves, they often will give some kind of, even if it's a family doctor, they'll give a prescription for something. So I'm a little bit cautious about that kind of a prescription. Unless somebody's had a had regular treatment, has really tried to work through some of those depressive events or anxious thoughts, then postpone medication as long as possible and work on some of the physical means of changing your brain. Something as simple as breathing, learning how to take eight or 10 deep breaths that open up your lungs all the way to the very bottom of your lungs and then Keep breathing till the very tops of your lungs are filled with air. Hold on to it for 10 seconds and let it out slowly. And learn how to take those really deep breaths without dying. Of course, some people can hardly take a breath, let alone a deep breath. But just the breathing technique of learning to let more oxygen in your system, slowing down your breath. I mean, what about exercise or walking regularly? Being outdoors is so therapeutic. Yeah, so you're, you're talking more about that short-term solution uh, to at least get to a long-term solution can sometimes be in a medicinal way, or it could be in just coping mechanisms like breathing or like getting out more. Like, um, but those are you would say potentially those are more short-term solutions to get to the long-term solution. Is that kind of what you're? I think it's a case-by-case analysis. Yeah. Uh, you know, every person that comes into the office, we do a intake interview and ask thousands of questions and. People have gone from counselor to counselor, um, may recognize some of those same questions, but there are a lot of counselors that just start letting the person talk. And, and we want to do an analysis to see what's happened in the past. And then, again, case by case. I've had uh, clients who, um, who have had medication, have had all kinds of therapy, but there's a simple thing called tapping that um, and short-circuiting the binary part of our brain that gets wired incorrectly from the left and right hemispheres to learn how to cross over your arms and cross over your, um, you know, different parts of the hemispheres of your body so that you can short circuit those thoughts with, with completely different thoughts at the time you have the bad thought and have amazing changes very short term that then build up the long term. So, no, I would say it's case by case. There's some people that have come in who have been on drugs, um, you know, medications for a long time, and to take them off would be horrible to their system. They've already been so adapted to that, and the, and the medications have changed their neural 
neurological receptors or the quantity of transmitters that are in their brains that they can't function without those. So you don't change that at all. So that's, again, I, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to medicine or not medicine. Um, so the Christian part of it, though, is interesting because I know there are a lot of Christian therapists that I don't trust. I, don't, I wouldn't send people to them. They have used techniques or they have been trite with their answers. They haven't gone in-depth analysis. They dismiss some of the effect of childhood traumas and they don't read some of the research that is prevalent to what happens in people's lives because we are we're we're in human bodies we're in flesh and blood so our brains act the same way whether we're christian or not christian it was a friend that told me um that they're really wary of any sort of christian counseling because of, of it was a christian friend and he said that he was really wary of christian counseling because of how they use the bible to talk about mental health and I feel like that's always stuck with me in a really negative way because I was thinking, I mean, what you said at the very beginning, Dad, was, you know, it's it's almost easier in marital counseling because you're working towards the common goal of transforming them to look like Christ, right? And when when we're working on our sanctification process of life, usually everything else, quote-unquote, falls into place. Not necessarily mental health, but priorities in life, right? All of that. But what, when he said that to me, I started to think how much more powerful have you seen like have you been able to use scripture to speak specifically to someone's life and they're struggling through something that maybe a secular world would deem um a mental health problem or anxiety or depression or 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 some issues like that and then you speak truth through god's word to them and you've seen where christian counseling has helped someone in a greater way than secular counseling ever could because Jesus was in the midst of it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And your friend is not the only thing, only person who's ever said that to me, even that in my professional circles, anybody who's called a Christian counselor is looked upon with scorn. And I'll tell you the biggest reason why is because Christian counselors don't go through the thousands of hours of supervised training that we've gone through. I have 3,000 hours that were supervised and um, over 200 hours individually with a supervisor talking about cases. So I've been run through the, the mill of what it's like to be a therapist and watched and recorded and, um, you know, all that. So Christian counselors that I've talked to, 50 hours or 100 hours. Wow. And so you don't have this vast field of expertise with all kinds of people and all kinds of situations before you set foot out there doing your thing. So uh, I don't think I'm perfect. I think a lot of times it's like a married couples. If I get six to eight sessions with a married couple, that's about all that they can give to me. Now I've had longer, but I don't know where Christian counselors that call. I do not call myself a Christian counselor because of that stigma in the professional world. But anybody that knows me and all the recommendations I get, people are coming to me because I'm a Christian who is a counselor. And they know that my methods are going to be centered around Christ and not just around therapies. Yeah. But what scripture has been most powerful, I'll give you one story, can't give names and too many details, but this is a couple that have been working together for 
a long time in their marriage and there was drugs involved and um, childhood abuse by, in, in one of the couples. And very high functioning couple. Um, you wouldn't know anything was wrong if you looked at this couple. Um, so after about, I don't know how many individual sessions, eight or 10 sessions uh, with the wife and three or four with the husband, and they didn't want to have all together couple sessions. And that was probably six months. All of a sudden I realized that there was something wrong with the, the sense of what the gospel is. So I asked, uh, just face out there, I just said, what is the gospel? I think we have an issue here, a fundamental problem with just you dealing with all these things in your life and in your marriage, because I'm not sure if you really know what the gospel is that saves you. Now remember, we've, I've had a long time with them to talk about the Bible and where their faith is at, how they're dealing with it, praying. and There's a lot of spiritual attacks on them, um, obvious spiritual attacks. Uh, so anyway, they gave me the wrong answer. Hmm. And so when I explained it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago, you don't have to do, you couldn't do anything. All you have to do is say thank you, and God's grace comes in, and you are at the top of his list. You're a favorite of God. You, have, you are like the amazing child that God always wanted, but it, it's not yours. It's God's work. It's, it happened 2,000 years ago. You were saved 2,000 years ago. And just that simple fact, they said, uh, wow, I have never heard that way. And, and I gave them an assignment to, to go and talk about 1 Corinthians 15. And I thought, you know, this is getting really kind of syrupy to just have them go back and talk about the gospel. And they came back the next week and said, this has changed our marriage. This has changed my life. I feel like I have been completely cleansed. I feel so much relief. I've always wondered why I've never really known if I was saved or not. And that's so, and after two more sessions, they said, we don't think we need to come back anymore. Wow. Doing well. I mean, it's like, this is where it's not just a one verse. Sometimes it's the theological concept of grace. Um, Grace-based marriages is a tremendous concept. It's not mine. It's the um, Family Matters people in their conferences and books on grace-based marriages. But anyway, um, there's something called theological reflection that's very powerful in a session as well. Theological reflection, as I am listening and writing and trying to keep track of patterns and trends and you know histories and different ways that they're expressing um, I hear a theological point of reference. And let's just say it's um, Mary at, after the resurrection seeing Jesus and then not recognizing him. Well, then I can pull that story up and say, do you remember the story of Mary not recognizing Jesus? And Jesus said Mary, and then she turned and looked at him. Well, that's the way I feel like your marriage is. Um, John, you've... We've been here together for two hours. You've never once said her name. And it wasn't until Jesus said Mary's name that she recognized him and turned and was amazed at him. I want you to say so Mary's name right now, whatever her name is. I want you to say it in a sentence and say something nice about her and use her name. 
And I did that once, and uh, oh, I don't know, a year or so ago, it just came to me. He's never using her name. It's always her or she. And she just started to weep. It's like, this is, mm. that's theological reflection. That's, is that using a Bible verse to cure somebody? No. I mean, it's the idea that real people are in the Bible with real stories and real context. And we're supposed to be able to see ourselves in those contexts. And that's what theological reflection is. It's just so cool because that's an idea like I've been I've been reading a book and the the author kind of went through some uh key uh biblical figures who clearly had mental health battles um talking about Job and Hannah um and David um and kind of looking at the extent of their despair mm-hmm. um coupled with god's glory um in their lives and so that just like i don't know that's really bringing it home for me <laughs> so just personally yeah. that's that's so cool there, there was a really good book that Rhonda, my wife and i read i'd say 25 years ago maybe 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 the late 90s um by joyce meyer the battlefield of the mind that has made a huge difference just in the way that I approach some of the problems that I have in my own life. The battlefield of the mind is what Paul talks about, that we're not supposed to be in the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And your mind has to be renewed because the world circumstances, even the way that our, like I said, those patterns of our neural um, uh, circuitry get stuck. And so we have to be transformed over and over again. And Battlefield of the Mind talks about two things. One is always giving thanks. Always giving thanks. And number two is always rejoicing. Knowing how to put a smile on your face, just putting a smile on your face changes your inside of your uh, head. It doesn't mean that you always feel it, but you learn that God always is on our side. And give away the anxiety, like Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, you know, to, to give up your anxiety, give it to God, pray it all, pray over everything, and um, you know, the peace that passes understanding will be yours. Or the other part of that is, um, you know, rejoicing always. Uh, give thanks, rejoice. It goes hand in hand. Um, of course, as he, he deals with all that unfaith material that we have, just not believing that God really is God. You know, God can't do, he just can't do this. So that really changed me in ministry, um, helping people to have faith, to give thanks. Even in the face of cancer or the death of a loved one, to learn how to have great faith and to rejoice and give thanks and watch God work. And it sounds so trite and Christianese and full of like, you know, syrupy, sweet, you're supposed, that's what you're supposed to do. But there is a battlefield in our minds to defeat us so that we cannot see God clearly, cannot hear his voice clearly, and will not act in obedience. They're, the battlefield is real. So anyway, that book really made a difference for me in terms of just my own personal life and thinking uh, and yeah. helping with highly anxious and stressful situations. You said something that kind of sparked a, a question that we, we had, and I was, I've been reading a book by Dallas Willard called Renovation of the Heart, 
Um, and he talks a lot about that, how in the Psalms you see the psalmists a lot of times speaking to specific areas of either their heart, their mind, their body, their soul, and they're speaking, telling, you know, telling their Psalm 42 is, oh, my soul, why are you downcast? Um, and he's almost questioning his soul and telling him to put his faith and hope and, and rejoice in the Lord like what you're saying. But um, do you feel like there's almost a direct correlation between faith and peace? Uh, the more faith I have, uh, the more the more peace I'm I'm going to gain in my life, and and what does that even what does that look like to to gain more faith? You know what I mean? Because I feel like what what you're I, I've heard what you've said before, but almost in, a, in the wrong context. In don't even process what you're going through, just put on a brave face. God is good, and keep moving on, type thing, uh, or or type sermons of you know you're battling with cancer, but God is still good. And and almost they don't even give room for the person to process through that pain that they're experiencing or to process the situations of life. So I guess to reframe the question, what does it look like to have faith in God and who he is while still processing what the experiences of life that you're going through. Because I think that there is a direct correlation between faith and peace. The more faith you have in God, then the, the stronger Christian you become and the more wise you become, the more peace you have in your circumstances. But what does it look like to have a faith like that and to grow in your faith like that while still giving room to process the things of life? The time that we have a bad thought or stressful thought or a panic attack and the, to the till the moment when we realize we're out of it, and we're on the other side of it, and we're healing and coping again, is that time period is really the period of the battleground, the battle zone, when we need to realize what is it that we can do at this moment to to know a couple things. One is, um, yeah, this is really bad. I think we need to realize the awfulness of the situation. I mean, it, it, losing a loved one or getting the, the pronouncement of cancer would devastate me or you or other people or knowing that somebody gets COVID-19 right now. People just have these crazy, hor- we call it horribleizations of the future. So how long does it take between that crazy thought, the stress, the anxiety, the crisis, the horror, the shot, before you start realizing again that God is still God and he's going to work things out? And that's really that you're talking about the area of processing and again that's that's a training ground for us to have that daily quiet time with god where we're constantly being fused with his spirit so that we know that the holy spirit's going to be working with us i may not feel like it may not want it but in time i'm going to come down from that craziness into a different level of existence where i begin to process it with god not just with my own emotions and, and everybody's going to have an emotional response that's totally normal, and we can't always deal with it very well at the moment. I mean, I look at all the couples that they are just screaming at each other, saying horrible things in the moment, and realizing later how horrible that was and feeling total shame, and then not having a way to come back so that they never really get back. They're always on the wrong side of the hill. <laughs> you know, They're always in that negative territory, and they can't seem to get in the positive territory. They need to learn new, new, uh, new techniques, new processes. This is another thing I learned a couple of years ago. We were, I was talking with some friends of mine from college, and we were taught through our InterVarsity Christian Fellowship days 
who that if you're a Christian, you never had lows and you didn't go swinging from high to low, high to low. And one of my friends said, oh, that's the British influence of keeping a stiff upper lip. No, the real Christian life is highs and lows. You have good days, you have bad days. You have seasons of life that's just everything seems to work out and other seasons where nothing works out. Uh, it just reminds me of um, this idea I had read in a book. A lot of times we think that our baseline needs to be happiness um, and that we're always trying to get back to happiness, but instead that our baseline is peace and from peace we move into happiness or we move into anger or we move into jealousy or grief. Um, but at that, we aren't meant to live in those heightened emotions were meant to come back to peace and contentment um which i feel like is exactly what you were hitting on and and it's hard to not feel that pressure of wanting to feel happy all the time but uh life is far less enjoyable if it's only all good because then you don't you don't realize what is good <laughs> um, i was thinking of one of my favorite psalms back when i was in college uh I had just a horrible nine months, I remember, in college, uh, my sophomore year. Just, it was just the pits. Um, it was the first time I let another guy just hug me while I wept on his shoulders. I'd never had that experience except with my mom or my dad. And um, Psalm 139, 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And I needed those words. I mean, I, it was the most devastating experience of my life, um, probably one of the top three of my life. And um, that, that psalm just spoke to me, that God knows my thoughts. He knows every step that I take. He's, he's never going to leave me. Even into hell, he is there with me. In Psalm 139, verse 6, he says that. And then test me and know my anxious thoughts. That's how real the Bible is, that God knows we have anxious thoughts. So I think you learn how to deal with those through life and not just ignore them. And you, you grow by not ignoring them. Thank you guys so much for joining us for this conversation. Uh, we want to encourage you to come back next week as this conversation is not over and we will be continuing this conversation on uh, mental health counseling and what to do uh, when things aren't going your way. Yeah, and in the meantime, if you have any questions on this topic or maybe some ideas for future content you want to hear, don't hesitate to send us an email either hannah at hopeandanderson.com or nathan at hopeandanderson.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Bye.